God is good. He is perfect in his goodness. He never fails, never falls short, and we can trust in him completely. It's good to know these things and to proclaim them not simply as an intellectual exercise, but as something that we have lived and experienced and can lean on all the time. One way I believe that his sovereignty and goodness is expressed this morning as Pastor Mitchell is not well and has stepped out of the pulpit for the morning is that we can talk together about one of the essentials of our Christian faith and something that is a key part of our life as a church, and that is prayer for healing. In fact, as we will soon wrap up the series on the fruit of the Spirit, we are going to start a short series on the essentials of what it is to be the church, what it is to be Cary Alliance Church. And one of those sermons would be talking about prayer for healing and about all that Jesus has done for us in order to provide for healing in the body. So as we go into a week in which we'll certainly be praying for Pastor Mitchell and a week in which many of us have a variety of physical concerns in which we have loved ones that we are praying for I believe that the Lord can give assurance and comfort and peace and hope to our hearts as we uh, delve into prayer and as we do it in a way that is biblical, that is based on God's revelation in his word. So we're going to read uh, James chapter 5, passage that many of you know. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Is any one of you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? They should call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This passage is actually amazingly simple in its teaching. Now, there are a whole lot of complex questions that arise when we read it and when we seek to put it into practice, but the words that James has for us, words inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us exactly as he would have them given, are very simple words a very clear instruction that we can follow through on as an expression of faith and obedience. The sick person should call on the elders of the church for anointing and for prayer. This is what the scriptures say, 
And as in every other area of life, we seek to conform our life and our habits and our practices to that of Scripture. And so again, out of faith and obedience, when we are in trouble, when we are sick, when we are in a situation in which we need help, we call for prayer. This is a regular practice of the church, and as described here specifically regarding prayer for healing, it is a practice that is carried on by the elders of the church. And again, keep in mind, in the spiritual world, in the world of the church, there's not a hierarchy of the super spiritual and of the less spiritual. Elders are people like you and me. Elders are men who are saved by God's grace. Elders are growing in faith and in their obedience to the Lord. Elders are called on to carry out a ministry of prayer. Again, this ministry of prayer is something that is simple and that is given to us in terms that are easy to follow. Some have wondered, is there a connection between the prayer that the elders offer and the gift of healing? Maybe all elders should have the gift of healing, or maybe only people who have the gift of healing should carry out prayer for healing. A parallel for this might be the gift of evangelism. Some people in our body are particularly gifted to share the gospel of Christ in a joyful and convincing way so that others come to faith. But all of us are called to make disciples. All of us are called to be witnesses to the faith. You don't have to have the gift of evangelists in order to be someone who is out there sharing your salvation in Jesus Christ. Likewise, the elders who come in response to this passage and offer a prayer for healing are not necessarily people who have a particular gift, but rather they are following through in obedience to what the scriptures have to say. So, someone who is sick or in trouble, call on the elders and elders out of obedience, pray. The prayer that the elders offer is prayer with anointing. Now, in Scripture, there are several kinds of prayer that are offered. Prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise, prayers of confession, but also prayers of supplication, prayers of asking. And this is referring to a prayer of asking. Elders coming, anointing an individual with oil, and asking for their healing. And the oil, we actually physically do this, the oil is offered as an expression of faith and obedience. There's a long history in Scripture of anointing with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of an individual. You can go all the way back to Exodus where God is giving Moses commands for setting aside the priestly family uh, for their ministry, and they are to anoint with oil. Now, some of you might be familiar with passages like in Psalm 133, where the psalmist describes how blessed it is, the anointing with oil that runs down your beard and over your body. And let me assure you, that's not what we do. <laughs> it's a very simple anointing on the forehead as an expression of faith, as an expression 
of obedience, doing what has been described for us in James chapter 5. And then one other practice is described in James chapter 5, calling on the elders for anointing and prayer and confession of sin. Many pastors and scholars have offered commentary on the connection between sin and sickness. We'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. But in general, keep in mind that we could be talking about particular sins. When we are asking for prayer, we are told to examine our lives, to examine our hearts, and if there are particular sins that hinder our relationship with God, then this is a time for confession. Now, we love private confession. And given the fact that we are all, in a sense, priests, that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and every individual who is in Jesus Christ, private confession is okay. Private confession is part of our daily prayer to examine our hearts, to let the Holy Spirit shine light on areas where we have fallen short, to confess that sin to the Lord and to receive forgiveness. But there is a particular blessing There is particular power in confession to others, and that is what is called here. If the Holy Spirit brings something to mind, to confess it with the elders and to receive prayer for forgiveness and for healing. Often, no particular act, no particular sinful hang-up will come to mind at this, partic- at this moment. And so instead, there's a generally holistic prayer for forgiveness, seeking full reconciliation with God, seeking to go deeper, to have those areas of our lives that haven't been completely turned over to Him, given to Him, laying our life before Him so that He can shine the light of His holiness on every dark area and allowing Him to penetrate deeper into our soul and into our being. This is how we can practice this searching and this time of confession. So the commands are very simple. A sick person calling on the elders who come to anoint and to pray. Opportunity to examine one's heart, to confess sin, and to seek a greater level of holiness in God's presence. And then there is a promise, a promise that is also very simple, a promise of healing and of forgiveness, and James uses the word salvation. So he is talking about a holistic healing. He's talking about our entire self being laid out before the Lord and the Lord touching our entire self, and bringing the salvation and the forgiveness and the healing that we need. And we claim this, we believe this, we fall on this as a promise that is offered us in Scripture. And I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about why. Why it is that we believe that this is a promise that is ours to lay hold of. The root passage that we fall on is in Isaiah chapter 53, 
Many of you are familiar with it. I'm only going to read for you a couple of verses. But in Isaiah 53, the prophet is talking about the suffering servant who is to come. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He describes Jesus in, in very simple and in powerful terms as one who had no beauty that we should be attracted to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He describes Jesus as the one who was despised and who was rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And then Isaiah says, surely he took up our pain. Another translation would say infirmities. It's talking about physical suffering. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. And then moving ahead to verse 12. Now talking about the exalted Jesus, God the Father saying, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is speaking of Jesus' work on the cross and what he took to the cross for us. And the basic message that every one of us must believe that we have to fall on is that Jesus took our sins to the cross. Every one of us deserves suffering and death because of sin. But we don't have to go through with it. Because Jesus took our sins upon himself. He went to the cross in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. On the cross, he bore the full measure of the wrath of God on all of human sin. He died in our place. He went to the grave so that we could have eternal life. And everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sin and new life, and a future with him in eternity. Jesus took our sin to the cross. Now, as one who believes in Jesus, as one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, my sin problem is dealt with. But there are a lot of you out there, probably in particular members of my family, who know that my sin problem hasn't been completely dealt with yet. We still have this process that we refer to as sanctification. In Hebrews chapter 10, there's this passage that, that almost is an oxymoron. Therefore, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. On the cross, in God's eyes, we have been made perfect. Jesus took our sin. He took the punishment. God looks at us through the lens of what Jesus did and says, this is my child who is holy in my sight. And yet, still, day to day, the Holy Spirit is at work in my life, making me practically holy in all of my attitudes and actions, my responses, what 
what goes on in my heart and mind and in my words and in everything else. You guys know the process. You're going through it too. And that process is only going to be completed in the day of Christ when we see him and are perfected and are made holy like he is. Okay, let's talk about our infirmities, our sicknesses, our sufferings in the same terms. Isaiah tells us that Jesus took our infirmities. One of the consequences of our sin is suffering in the body. It is sickness and death. Jesus took that upon himself. He bore our sickness for us. He dealt with the problem of suffering in the body. And so, in a sense, it is gone. But in another sense, we still wrestle with it day to day, and it will not be completely gone until the day that we see him and our bodies are transformed or our resurrected bodies are made to look like him and are completely delivered from suffering and from sickness, from all of the strivings of the flesh. So Isaiah 53 is the root of our understanding about the doctrine of healing. Jesus took our sickness to the cross. He bore it in our place so that we can be healed. Now there are some who would say, no, all of those are actually words that simply describe sin and spiritual sickness. Isaiah 53 doesn't have anything to do with healing in the body. But Jesus himself makes it clear that he does. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Jesus came to Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Matthew knew very clearly that Isaiah was talking not only about sin, but was talking about physical sickness and that Jesus is the answer. So we believe the promise of James chapter 5 because we believe what Jesus took on the cross. He took our sin and he took our suffering. And so we follow through on what has been commanded. This is something that our elders do often after a worship service in one of the offices. We gather around for anointing and prayer. This is something that we do in people's homes as we have been called on and asked to pray for those who are sick. This is something that you can claim because you are part of the body of Christ. For the rest of our time together, I want to talk then about some erroneous teaching that can creep in, as well as the attitude that we should have in our hearts as we pray, as we pray over the coming week for Pastor Mitchell, as we pray for others, as we wrestle with this reality. One thing that we have to be clear about, and this is so important, not just in this context, but in all of the context of our praying. We are not performing a magical practice. 
Anointing with oil is not sort, some sort of magic ritual. Why do we put an emphasis on that? Because magic in, his, in its essence is the idea that we can manipulate something to bring about the results that we desire. And unfortunately, our praying is often a magical practice. I can manipulate God into doing what I want Him to do if only I will pray the right way, if only I will carry out the right ritual, if only I will do certain things. In this context, if we pray for someone to be healed and that healing doesn't come in the way that we expect or in the time that we expect, we can fall into magical thinking. What did I do wrong? Maybe I didn't confess sin hard enough. Maybe one of those elders didn't have enough faith. Maybe I need to redo the oil in a different way to make sure that it's done the right way. Hey, pour it all over, please. We are not in the business of manipulating God in order that He will accomplish what we want. We are in the business of submitting ourselves to God who is good and holy and perfect. So yes, we practice anointing with oil because it is a physical action that has symbolic significance. It is a physical action that reminds us of consecration, of belonging to God. We anoint with oil and we pray as an expression of obedience. We recognize that oil is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we long for the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives day to day, filling us up and overflowing through us and bringing power for ministry and for healing. So we do these things because they have meaning, but not as an act of manipulation. We keep in mind that praying is the main thing here. If you look at the grammar of James chapter 5, if you look at the theological context of all of the scriptures, prayer is the central action involved here. And prayer, as we will talk about later, is ultimately submitting ourselves to the will of God. A second error that we can fall into. All sickness is due to personal sin. That is an error that we must not fall into. It's easy to fall into because sin is right there in the middle of the passage. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And it's important to keep in mind that sometimes sickness has to do with personal sin. John chapter 5, Jesus heals the paralytic and says to him, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Making a definite connection between personal sin and something that can happen in the body. Many of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talking about communion and those who receive communion in an unworthy way and many, because of this, 
are sick or even have fallen asleep. So a connection between receiving communion in an unworthy way and personal sickness. That's a whole different sermon we can deal with sometime. The book of Hebrews tells us that God punishes children that he loves because he desires to work in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. So yes, there can be a connection between personal sin and sickness. This is why it's so important to have that time of examining oneself, of asking the Holy Spirit to examine and confessing sin. But there is not always that direct connection. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. It's a beautiful story. As Jesus and the disciples are going towards the temple, the disciples see this blind man, and this is their question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There's only two options in their mind. This guy was born blind, somebody sinned. Either he sinned in the womb, or his parents sinned, and therefore God directly punished them with this blindness. And Jesus said, no. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened that God may be glorified. There's two essential lessons there. The first, in contrast to the erroneous thought, not all sickness is necessarily related to personal sin. God might be doing something else. And amazingly, in the middle of our suffering and our striving, when our hearts so often cry out, why? The answer might actually simply boil down to one fact. You, I, simple, fleshly, fallen human being can bring glory to God. In our faithfulness, in our love, in our humility, in our long-suffering, as we exercise the fruit of the Spirit and the struggles of our soul and our flesh, we can bring glory to God. A third error to avoid. This is kind of the opposite side. And that is that going to the doctor is not a spiritual act. That is an error. Some would say going to the doctor is not faithful. You've got to trust in God in these matters. No. Going to the doctor is okay. Every gift is from above. The gift of knowledge, the gift of being able to pursue truth, to research, to find solutions, to discover the things that God has hidden within creation to bring glory to himself and health to our bodies is a thing that brings him glory. Luke the author of the third gospel, was a doctor. Paul told Timothy, 
Take a little bit of wine for your stomach. In other words, Timothy had some digestive issues. Paul knew that wine might help him out with those issues. Practice medicine in a way that we understand as a means of God's work in the body. One commentator points out that there is no such thing as non-spiritual healing. When aspirin works, it is the Lord who made it work. When the surgeon sets a broken limb, it is the Lord who gave him the knowledge and the ability. Every gift is from above, given to us for our joy and for his glory. It's okay to go to the doctor, but the other side of the coin, on no occasion should we approach a doctor without also approaching God. The gift of prayer, the gift of healing is for him as well. And so we practice this holistic approach to health in our bodies. And one more error, and this is some that we sometimes really feel guilty dealing with. It is erroneous to believe that God always heals in this life as a response to genuine faith. I almost feel guilty saying those words. And some of you have probably at various times felt guilty thinking those things. But this is what the Scripture says. How can James promise the prayer offered in faith will lift him up? How can James say, go to the elders, they will pray. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven and he will be saved. He will be healed. You're not alone in asking these questions and you're not unspiritual to ask these questions. And as we wrestle with them, there are three truths to keep in mind. One of them is, we all die unless Jesus comes first. That's a fact. Our bodies will fail. Redeemed as we may be in Jesus Christ, if he doesn't come first, our bodies will fail. We will die in the flesh. There are scriptural examples. Second fact to keep in mind. There are scriptural examples of people of faith who were not healed solely by prayer. Paul, of course, is the shining example, the thorn in the flesh. We don't even know what the thorn in the flesh was. We do know that he brought it to God not once, but three times, praying that he would be delivered from whatever this affliction was. And God said, no. This is a time for my grace to be sufficient for you, for my power to be made perfect in your weakness. Paul did not in this life, as far as we know from the scriptures, receive the yes answer to the deliverance from the thorn in the flesh. Some of Paul's colleagues, Epaphroditus, Trophimus, needed healing and did not receive it through prayer alone. So we can't neglect the truth that death is inevitable unless Jesus comes first, 
that there are those in Scripture, people of faith, who were not healed solely by prayer. And the third truth, that saving slash healing, because those two go hand in hand in this passage and throughout the Scriptures, have two different references. They refer to healing of the body, but they also refer to resurrection at the last day. In John chapter 6, Jesus uses these same terms as he's describing, I will raise them up. James says they will be raised up. Jesus says, I will raise them up. I will raise them up in the last day. I will raise them up in the last day. A third time, I will raise them up in the last day. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the glorious passage about the resurrection, talks about bodies that are sown in weakness, bodies that are sown in corruption. This is people who died, who will be raised in perfection, who will be raised in the image of Jesus Christ. Paul is referring, hear me, to a greater healing And conversely, when we pray for healing in the flesh in this life, we are praying for a lesser healing. Yes, a glorious healing, but one that still will inevitably lead to death. The greater, the glorious, the eternally joyous, never-failing healing is the healing that we will receive when we see Jesus Christ. And there is no more sickness. There is no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sorrow. So yes, follow through on James chapter 5 because this is God's will to bring healing and life to our bodies. But don't lose sight of the great and glorious hope that is ours, the one that will never fail, and that is our resurrection in Jesus Christ. Okay, so what do we do with all this? As you're praying this week, and as through the extent of our lives in which we are given to various forms of decay. How do we pray? First of all, we should pray in a Romans chapter 8 sense of faith. That's a whole other sermon. But it's just such a beautiful passage. In Romans chapter 8, Paul ties in the corruption in our flesh and the corruption in our world with the decay that comes because of sin in our world. And he says that all of creation is groaning. And we ourselves are groaning as we wait for the day of final redemption. And he urges us to wait with hope. Hope that won't be disappointed. Hope that is confident that God hears, that God answers, that that day is coming. And then he says, 
having this hope, even when we don't know how to pray, we can fall on the Holy Spirit. So there might be a situation in your life, a situation in my life, in which we're seeing that decay. We see it at work in our bodies. And we've run out of words. We've been as faithful as we can be. We know and are absolutely confident of our hope in Jesus Christ. But we just want to be done with the suffering. Lord, will you please heal? And even when we run out of words, even when we don't know what to pray anymore, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Pray with a Romans 8 sense of hope and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Second bit of advice. Recognize that prayer is primarily a commitment to the will of God. And as one commentator said, all true prayer exercises its truest faith in patiently waiting to see what God has determined to do. All true prayer, prayer exercises its truest faith in patiently waiting to see what God has determined to do. The thing that we can't do is decide in our hearts what God ought to do and try and force him to do it. But rather go to him in the knowledge that his will is good and perfect and patiently wait for him to accomplish his will in our life and in our bodies. All throughout scripture, prayer is placed in the over all context of God's will. You know when Jesus talks about prayer and praying in God's will. We know that Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane went to God in prayer. He did not want to die in his flesh. He did not want to endure the sufferings of the cross. He said, God, deliver me from this. But not my will, yours be done. And he gave that to us as an example of praying in our affliction. We are praying, submitting ourselves to God's will and patiently waiting for it to be carried out. And so then the faith that we exercise in prayer is faith that God who is good will accomplish his sovereign will in the way that brings him the greatest glory and, in the end, brings us the greatest joy. Douglas Moo said, The faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. We may at times be given insight into that will, enabling us to pray with absolute confidence in God's plan to answer as we ask. But to ask in Jesus' name means not simply to utter his name, 
but to take into account his will. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you not to be discouraged from practicing the prayer of James chapter 5. Don't be discouraged by secularism. Secularism says that is unscientific, that is naive, microbes cause sickness, take an antibiotic, damaged DNA causes cancer, ingest more antioxidants. Yes, follow the best advice that God has given the medical profession. But recognize that ultimately it is God who heals. Don't be discouraged by secularism. Be bolstered in your faith. Don't be discouraged by pride. It can be embarrassing. It can be particularly embarrassing if there's sin to confess. This is a gift that is given to us. Put aside pride. Put aside doubt. Exercise the gift that has been given. And don't be discouraged by fear. Fear of disappointment. What if it doesn't work? What do you mean, what if it doesn't work? Of course it works. God will give you everything you need in this life, up to and including healing in the body. And God will perfect your body and completely deliver you in eternity to come. Don't be discouraged, but rather be encouraged. Be encouraged by the knowledge that God is good. Be encouraged by the understanding of what he has promised. And be encouraged by the hope. He never fails. He carries us through and he brings us into glory. And there is nothing that can interrupt that process or hold it back. Pray for Pastor Mitchell this week. Pray for his healing. Pray for fullness of the Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in his body. Pray for those whom you know and love. Look for opportunities to exercise this gift that has been given ours in Jesus' name and for God's glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our provision. that you are more than enough. We do not need anything else but you. You are our hope. You are our life. You are our peace. You are our strength. You are our reason for existence. 
Forgive us, Lord, when we let anything else supplant you. When we try and satisfy the desires of our flesh through worldly pleasures. When we seek meaning in work or accomplishments or even our families, all of these things are gifts from you, but they are not you. Lord, forgive us when we seek healing or provision of need in any way that doesn't bring you glory. Thank you that in Jesus is our life and our salvation, our hope and our future. And so, Father, we pray beyond anything else for our dear pastor and for each one of us that you would be all in all. We pray for many among us who are sick that you would bring healing, that you would deliver from disease, that you would strengthen weak bodies, that you would give life and vigor for ministry and service. Thank you that these are ours because of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the blessed hope of that day when we'll see Jesus. When there will be no more struggle with temptation. When there will be no more sin. No more sorrow. No more sickness. No tears. No groans. Ever-increasing pleasure in your glorious presence. Thank you that there is nothing that can shake that hope for those who are in Christ. And so we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.